So we're in the midst of studying our way through the book of Numbers. And um, while it's sort of a complex book in a lot of regards, uh, we get to this point and there are some things that are shown to us. Should I switch mics? Can you take that one out and I'll bring it? Don't say it. If you're sitting there thinking, it, it, you know, it couldn't get any worse. It can. <laughs> so that seems a little loud, uh, but uh, I'll let you govern that. So we're in the, this study uh, in the book of Numbers, and we're getting um, these explanations regarding what each of the family groups in the tribe of Levi do, what their responsibilities are. Uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 29, at verse 34, uh, we're told Levi was the third son of Jacob by Leah, Rachel's uh, sister. So the Levites being descended uh, from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Levi has this special role that he is uh, to uh, fulfill in his descendants. Uh, also, as way of introduction in Exodus chapter 32 at verse 26. It says, Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. So all the priests are Levites, but not all the Levites are priests, if that makes sense to you. Uh, Genesis chapter 46, verse 11, the sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. So the duties involving the Levites, uh, the duties of the sons of Kohath, uh, we see beginning here in Numbers chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath, from among the children of Levi, by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. So the numbering will actually begin in verse 34. Uh, they were numbered, as you may remember, in chapter 3, but for a total count of the tribes dealing with the redemption of the firstborn from one month old and on. So the total number of Levites was assembled, and God compared that against the total number of the firstborn. The number of the firstborn in all the other tribes was uh, 700 and something more, than the Levites, so God basically said, you owe me the balance, and they had to redeem those firstborn back into their own tribes uh, with sums of shekels of silver. So the point is, they were supposed to, that those firstborn from all the other tribes were supposed to 
enter into service uh, through the tribe of Levi, and the Lord allowed those tribes to redeem those men back into their own tribes by paying the priesthood to retain them. Here, the numbering is within those tribes of Levi for the service to the Lord. So now the Lord and the nation of Israel are going to calculate how many from the tribe of Levi are 30 years old to 50 that they might enter the service of the Lord. Some things in regard to this specific age. Uh, Genesis chapter 41 verse 46 says Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to serve and oversee the land and the people and the gathering of the grain that was to go on there. Second Samuel chapter 5 verse 4 David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Luke chapter 3, verse 32. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. There's always a time of consecration before the Lord uh, brings a person from that preparation into service. So, uh, you know, we hear in the New Testament, Paul is telling us that no one who is a novice, a new convert to the faith, should be made a pastor or an overseer within the congregation, lest uh, through pride they fall into the same temptation as the devil. There needs to be a period of time where a person grows and matures. That could be a very young age, and they could start you know, into service of the Lord uh, at a younger age. I'm not trying to say 30 is the point. Uh, the demonstration the scripture is putting forward here is there's a time of preparation beforehand. Um, <clears throat> uh, being a youth pastor is where I began in the ministry uh, in 1995. And um, any of you that have served around or in youth ministry know that there's a tremendous amount of struggle and attack and battle that goes on uh, in serving in those areas in those ministries. My personal conviction is uh, it's because of the fact, the statistical fact, that uh, 80% of the people who come to be believers do so before the age of 18. So... In this room, if we did a statistic, 80% of the people who surrendered their lives did so before the age of 18. That puts what we often refer to as spiritual battle, that puts 80% of the spiritual battle below the age of 18. So those young people in the ministry, those that are serving in that ministry, you pray for them. The average lifespan in ministry and, and maybe literally lifespan of a youth pastor serving in ministry is less than six months right some of you had youth pastors for 20 years right imagine how far outside the norm they are there's a tremendous amount of struggle involved you don't want to take someone who's clearly anointed by the lord clearly called to the ministry, but a new convert and just thrust them into that environment. 
they're going to experience a level of attack and difficulty inside their their own person, their life, their family, their finances. You know, it's going to be tremendous. There's there's a time of preparation and cons- consecration that is is very necessary. So, especially young people, appreciate your youth pastors, but also, you know, prayerfully consider if you feel the Lord speaking to your heart about the call and the necessity for preparation and consecration. You know, when we're zealous like that, we want to just launch and get into things. And uh, usually when the devil's ripped some portion of your person off and handed it back to you, that's when you realize how big the battle is. It's it's intense. So um, Paul has a New Testament sense of service to the Lord that he relays. You look at the commitments of these Levites, Paul makes a statement in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, which we find very critical, that says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, that's why we teach the whole Bible in uh, this church, from Genesis to Revelation. We, we start at Genesis, we go through to Revelation. When we hit Revelation, we go back to Genesis. So each one of those books I named this morning, uh, being in numbers right now, like I've literally had people come and you know they're visitors and you know they come to me after the service and they're like really Leviticus that was your choice for Sunday morning you know and my position is if I don't do that then I'm shunning declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word right we've been here for 18 years as Abigail mentioned uh this morning and um uh you wouldn't believe how many times people have come to me and, and said, yeah, I've been a believer for 30 years. I've been a believer. When we first started, a woman came to me and said, I've been a believer for 60 years. I've been in church since I was a child. And I've never heard any of these things. Right, because she's never been taught much of anything out of the Old Testament. And then, even in the New Testament, much of what she's being taught only had a one-sided effect to it. Because it didn't reach back to the Old Testament. So these Levites have a very specific uh, job that is laid out to them, and they they are called to serve in that job. Okay, uh, we have taken the mandate that Paul says there in Acts chapter twenty verse twenty seven of teaching the whole counsel of God's word as our burden, if you want to say, our our job within the body of Christ. Topical sermons. And churches that do that, awesome, praise God. I mean that. I, just, I don't. We don't have like an attitude about, hey, we're the real church because we teach Genesis to Revelation, right? Uh, you know, other portions of the tribe of Levi have other jobs. This, this we feel is our job. That that's why we're here, distinct in the community. There's there's 37 churches, and I, and I say churches. I'm excluding the ones that claim to be churches who are not. <laughs> Okay, there are 37 legitimate churches in the greater Ellsworth area. They all have a role in the body of Christ. And I've literally been asked, why are you guys here? You got all these other churches. What? Because this is our job. Making sure that this distinction is in place. You want to know and understand? We're going to do our best to deliver this to you. So let's look at verse 4. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. 
When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So this is uh, got to be Eliezer and Ithamar, Aaron's sons, because Nadab and Abihu uh, have already died. So when he's telling us that these are the sons of Levi or the sons of Aaron, we're looking at Eliezer and Ithamar. In verse 6, it says, Then they shall put on it a covering of badger's skin. And wow, talk about foolish things to argue about. Read the commentaries on this issue. You know, everybody wants to debate about what were the badger's skin. There are literally guys that insist this was dolphin. You know what I'm saying? And they get all wild about their particular view of this. The idea is it's some kind of water resistant or waterproof covering. And that could have been from how they treated the skin or the leather in order to create this water resistant covering. So badger skin um, and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue and they shall insert its poles. Remembering we'll talk a little bit more about no one was to touch uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. On the table of the showbread, they shall spread a blue cloth and put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, the pitchers for pouring, and the showbread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a scarlet cloth and cover the same with the covering of badger skin, and they shall insert the pole. So this is what Aaron and his sons are doing in preparation for when the ark moves. They shall take the blue cloth and cover the lampstands of the light and its lamps with its wicks, trimmers, its trays, and all the oil vessels with which they service it. And then they shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of badger's skin and put it on a carrying beam. So this menorah uh, is not the uh, menorah that you see in Jewish homes at Hanukkah. This is the one designed a little differently uh, for the tabernacle of meeting. And it is solid gold and weighs around 75 pounds. So pretty serious piece of artifact. Over the golden altar... They shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of badger skin, and they shall insert its poles. Then they shall take all the utensils of service with which they minister in the sanctuary and put them in a blue cloth over them with a covering of badger skin and put them on a carrying beam. They also, they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it, and they shall put on it all its implements with which they minister there, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and all the utensils of the altar. And they shall spread on it a covering of badger skin and insert its poles. Stay with me. I know we're sort of bogged down in the details here, but we'll read a little more. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go. Then the sons of Kohath shall 
come to carry them. So Aaron and his sons are going to cover all of these things. And now Kohath and his descendants are going to come to carry them. The appointed duty of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light, the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, the oversight of all the tabernacle, of all that is in it, with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Do not cut off the tribe of the families of the Kohathites from among the Levites. Do But do this in regard to them, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and his tasks, but they shall not go in to watch while the holy things are being covered, lest they die. Okay, now uh, there's a two-part discussion within that statement. The first of which is the tribe of Kohath actually rises up and tries to uh, overthrow the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And the Lord is in some way saying, don't cut them off. More significantly here, the idea of staying within their roles, right? Aaron and Moses, the descendants of Aaron, are the, the priests. The other tribes have service to the Lord, but it isn't the same as the priesthood. Anyone who tries to usurp that authority, God draws a very firm line to say there's death involved. Only the descendants of Aaron, those that I have anointed, are the ones that should serve in their position. A New Testament sense of things, you know, uh, James, right, the, the stepbrother, the half-brother of Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, said that not many should think themselves teachers because they will experience a greater judgment. And the way that's written is that the greater judgment is in this life and in eternity when we stand before the Lord. You know, you stand up to be a pastor and minister, there, there is a judgment that comes upon you. There is an inspection that comes upon you that is way heavier than just being a Christian. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure involved in that, as I described youth pastors just moments ago. You know, if that's your role, then you can't but do it. You must. You must serve the Lord. If it's not, then trying to take that role upon yourself. And you say, well, who would do that? I've witnessed it many times. I've witnessed it many times. So the most blatant example that I saw was a young man who was a youth pastor who tried to move into positions of authority within the church that he was involved in, made a mess of that church destroyed a lot of the work that the Lord was doing. Eventually, when that church collapsed, he left, gathered a bunch of people to himself. The last thing that I read about him was the assault report upon his wife where he had beaten her. You know, you, you know not called to a certain position. You step in 
to a certain realm, you're going to experience some pain that you've never experienced before. Some of you know my pastor, Ken Graves, really well, right? Ken's into this whole Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, grappling, big guy, bench press a refrigerator, that sort of thing. <clears throat> he had occasion some years ago to meet and deal with a, a fellow Christian professional UFC fighter. And they're in the gym, working out, grappling. And he's saying to this man, you got to show me stuff. And this guy's being polite, saying, you don't understand. We're in different classes of skill here. <laughs> I appreciate all you've learned and you know and what you're doing, but I'm a professional fighter. And insisting, those of you know that can't know can, insists, you got to show me this. Okay. Any of you that know the move from wrestling, high school wrestling, things of that nature, uh, he did a full body lift. So they face off, and this man drops down and scoops in and picks my 200-plus-pound pastor up from behind and just does a topple over backwards, drives his head and shoulders right into the floor, right? Both of his clavicles went pop and came right off. You step into a different class of warfare when you say, I'll lead this congregation. <laughs> if the Lord gives you an area of service, be faithful in that. Learn, train, understand, do well there. If the Lord, if the Lord invites you into a bigger realm, move into that bigger realm. He'll defend you 100% of the way. Getting it in your head of, I can do this guy's job. That is never the call of the Lord. Never the call of the Lord. Think of Saul and David, right? Saul's a total bonehead, and God eventually removes him. And then raises up David. David never tries to overthrow Saul. Has the opportunity. That one occasion where he's in the cave and he cuts the hem of Saul's robe away, he repents of that and says, I should never have even touched the Lord's anointed. It's not my job. Right? Find your job. The Lord is calling every one of us to service. And I mean every one of us to service. Find your job. Speak to the Lord. Let him lead you. But find a contentment in that job because it's our enemy that wants to lead us into trying to take somebody else's job. And that's a big portion of this lesson right here. Aaron has a job. His sons have a job. They maintain certain things. And it's for the protection of those that serve with them. Those that serve, we would say, under them. Right? These men, oh, all we get to do is carry this stuff around. You know, these guys are sacrificing and they get the, you know, all the they get all the glory, and we just gotta carry all the burdens. And they've got their own burdens. Carry what the Lord has called you to. So as far as how severe this is, Second Samuel chapter six, verses six and seven, there's an interesting story where the uh, 
Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant and it's been outside the land of Israel for a long period of time. And then it's come back into the land. There's a curse upon the Philistines because they've stolen the Ark of the Covenant. And so they just put it on a cart with some ox and the cows really. And they just send the cows off to tow that into Israel all on their own. And miraculously the cows bring it in and they take the Ark and they put it inside a house until... They decide we need to put this back into the center of worship. And rather than read God's word and find out how that thing is supposed to be transported, right? This is hundreds of years after what we just read. King David is like, yeah, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant back in for the worship of Israel. Unfortunately, rather than doing it like this, where the priests come and cover it, and prepare it, and do what they're supposed to, they copy what the Philistines have done, and they put it on a cart with oxen, towing it back into town. And in the midst of it, jostling along, it tips, and Uzziah tries to help out the situation. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzziah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. The anger of the Lord was aroused against, uh, I said Uzziah, Uzzah, and and God struck him for his error and he died by the ark of God. When God says this role belongs to Aaron and his descendants, no one gets to touch this thing. That's, that's for the protection of these people. It, it isn't so that he can create an arrogant superclass of believers, Aaron's you know, descendants, they're better than everybody else. It's, it's because the power of God is seen within this and God is trying to protect them from it. Why? Why would God do this? Why would God create these circumstances this way? Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are high, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the simple answer is none of your business. Okay? There is another explanation, and it's quite powerful. I've prayed about this at length, and I've given this illustration many times. If you've not heard it before, bear with me. If you've heard it before, bear with me. Okay. <clears throat> I built towers for years, and uh, I've been on sites and seen some impressive towers and transmitters. In Greenbush, Maine, there is the single largest shortwave transmitter uh, that is privately owned. Uh, located in Greenbush, Maine, um, conducts a million watts of broadcast power. Any of you that know anything about radio, that's impressive. Okay, uh, It's surrounded by 12-foot-high chain-link fence, two layers. You come to the gate, one gate opens, you pull through, that closes behind you, the next one opens up, and you go in because the effective radiated output of power on this is so powerful, they only have to bush hog the grass in front of the antennas that broadcast like once a year. It stunts the growth of the grass. Uh, they frequently find 
uh, huge amounts of wildlife, birds and such, that are dead in front of this thing. Okay, Inside this place, in the transmitter booth, there's copper wire every four inches. So four inches apart this way, four inches apart this way. You're inside a cube that's surrounded, and that's all grounded back into a big copper mat that's in the ground to capture the RF radiation and conduct it back in the ground so that the operators of this radio station sitting inside aren't continuously just getting cooked by the antennas that are right outside. The transmitter in this, a million watts, okay, any of you that are familiar with radio stations, WHCF, uh, I rebuilt that tower in uh, 1997 after ice collapse, that's 50,000 watts of power, 50,000 watts, okay, so you can get that uh, almost into Holton, you can get it almost, you know, down to like Freeport, 88.5, 50,000 watts, a million watts, of power, okay? Now start thinking about God's power, okay? A million watts of radio power. Inside the booth, right, guy talking on the microphone, they can tune the radio to that frequency to listen to him broadcast. And and there, there's a, a weird, weird thing, thing that happened, the echo, because what's going on is it's coming out of his mouth, and you hear that, and the signal goes all the way around the globe and hits the antenna. You're hearing it a second later. It's that powerful. They wrap the globe with their signal. When they want to talk to Africa, they back these cables off so the tower leans forward. They tension these ones like this so that the signal path moves over here and they hit the whole top of Africa. When they want to broadcast to Europe, they pull this one back and they tip this one forward and they move the whole broadcast signal. They, they literally shoot their signal all over the world with this thing. So <clears throat> I'm with the engineer, remembering God's power, transmitter power. I'm with the engineer. We're walking through the warehouse where the transmitter is as we walk by. There's this huge glass plate that runs down the length of the transmitter. And I look over, and there's this weird sensation visually, and I stop and say, am I out of my mind, or is this transmitter underwater? And he said, yeah, it's underwater. The whole transmitter, right, raw circuitry, there's three-phase power that comes off the top of power lines that drops down, goes right in the side of the building, plugs into this transmitter. And that goes in right where the water is. The whole transmitter is underwater. Circuit boards are underwater. You can see the heat rising up off circuit boards. And now I'm feeling really stupid because water conducts electricity. And, like, shouldn't this be blowing up? Like, what is going on that you just, I mean, remember the last time you just took your computer and, like, submerged it in the bathtub? <clears throat> That's what I'm looking at. And he said, oh, well, let me explain to you. These two giant containers are liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. And this whole valve system blends them together perfectly to create chemical H2O. What actually causes electricity to be conducted through water 
so rapidly and so freely is the free-floating minerals. It's the pollutants within the water that cause the conduction of the electricity, not water. Water, H2O, chemically, is an excellent insulator, and it draws the heat off from the circuits very well. So they're circulating very rapidly, this hyper-cooled chemical water through, drawing it out into a big cooling tower, reducing it to near freezing, and pumping it back in, right? Keeping this million-watt transmitter super-cooled all the time. Pretty cool concept. As I'm standing there looking at that, I believe the Holy Spirit laid upon me a revelation. That Jesus Christ's purity is what insulates us from the destructive power of God. That, that we, we, right, with no protective barrier of Jesus Christ's purity, like Uzzah, we would experience death at touching the Ark of the Covenant or the direct presence of the Lord himself. It, it is his grace, his mercy, and his purity that protects us from that. And in my opinion, that's what the Lord is showing us in these circumstances, is do not touch the power of God with your impurity. I have a group of people who I've given specific instructions as to how to handle this very deadly thing. And if you disobey that, then you're going to experience the raw, unadulterated judgment and power of God. I like the protective layer, you know what I'm saying? I like the grace of God between me and that power. The blood of Jesus Christ that keeps me from experiencing the wrath of God. So here, when we look at this, and you might be thinking like, what is this, God's killing people? Is, I mean, how, yeah, that his potency, his power, without some kind, and the only kind of protection we can have is Jesus Christ between us and him. What a gracious thing. Rather than being concerned about why would God do that, understand Oh, how gracious that he's not doing it to all of us all of the time. That we're not all not just some, you know, charred spot on the you know, pavement somewhere. I just screw up and done with that guy. Next, you know. Very, very gracious that the Lord does that. So, verse 21, we now see the duties of Gershon and the sons of Gershon, beginning at verse 21, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also, take the census of the sons of Gershon by his father's house, by their families, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. You shall number them, all who enter to perform the service, do not uh, to do the work, rather, in the tabernacle of meeting. This is the service of the families of the Gershonites in serving and carrying. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tabernacle of meeting with its coverings, the coverings of badger skin that is on it and the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the gate of the courts, the hangings of the court which are around the tabernacle and altar, their cords, all the furnishings for their service and all that is made for these things. They shall serve. Aaron and his sons 
shall assign all the service of the sons of the Gershonites, all their tasks and all their service. And you shall appoint to them all their tasks as their duty. This is the service of the families of the son of Gershon in the tabernacle of meeting and their duties shall be under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Here's, here's a, another one-liner statement. God anoints, man appoints. Okay. Um, pastor's conference last year, uh, Bill Gallatin uh, from Calvary Chapel in Farmington, he brought Calvary Chapel to the East Coast asked uh, all of us pastors there, you really need to look at your own lives, he was saying, and decide whether you went out, whether you were sent out, or whether you were kicked out. As pastors, as people, as Christians serving the Lord, where do you fall in that qualification? Did the Lord send you out, or did you just go out? Or were you kicked out because we were failing? There needs to be in our lives the understanding of those three things being very possible. One of those three things. And obviously the one we want is the sent out, that the Lord has worked in our lives and like we described through the time of preparation and consecration, we've been readied for the moment where we go out. Simply saying, no, the Lord has called me to this, and then charging off to go do it is not necessarily the wisest move. You know, these men understood the Lord had anointed them for their service. Yes, men appointed them to go do that service, but, but hear me in this. If God has not anointed them, it doesn't matter who appoints you. You're not called to go do that thing. And there are many people, many people who have presumed roles upon themselves. Christianity's full of it, full of people who have made the decision that I'm going to go into the ministry and now they're out there and my goodness, you know, may, maybe they even were called, but. The fact that rather than the anointing of the Lord and then the appointment by men, they've just gone out and everyone who's experiencing their ministry is really suffering at the hands of their ministry. I, I, have, I have sat in many sermons and walked out thinking, I, I have no idea what that pastor was trying to say to me whatsoever. Not, not, not from some sense of arrogance, like I'm the best. I mean, I've, I've sat under pastors who their approach and their delivery was super simple but i was totally blessed you just you can understand this guy is nailing it on the head it's, he's doing a great job this is clearly a man anointed by the lord then you sit under others who have a great show and flash and wow to everything they're doing and you walk out going i i what was that all about like what how did that minister to me it needs to be that we have, yes, the appointing, but most importantly, first, the anointing from the Lord and what it is that he's directing. So let's get through a little more. Verse 29, as 
for the sons of Merari, you shall number them by their families and by their father's house from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, you shall number them. Everyone who enters the service to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And this is what they must carry as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting. The boards of the tabernacle, it, it, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the pillars around the court with their sockets, pegs and cords and all their furnishings and all their service. And you shall assign to each man by name the items he must carry. This is the service of the families of the sons of Merari, all their service for the tabernacle of meeting. Under the authority of Ithamar, the sons or the son of Aaron, the priest. There, there is a great deal of work within the body of Christ. Uh, I, I've pointed out that we've moved into a time in our Christian culture within the church where a lot of the church is coming to the gatherings of Christians with the sole mindset of what is this church here to give to me? We're, we're, we're focusing on ourselves rather than on one another, rather than on the Lord, rather than coming together to say, how can I go and serve this body? What, how, what am I going to give to this body? As I come, what am I going to give to the Lord as I come? And where I hear it as a pastor is the people who come, not you guys. I hear this happens in other places. So just bear with me. Uh, people come and they, 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 their experience and they walk away and they're like, oh, you know, I didn't, the music was just not to my liking today. You know, the, the temperature was, you know, way too cold, way too hot. Well, just I, you know, I was not blessed in that service. I, right? Whenever we begin from that position of I, me, mine, that unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, right? Obviously, that needs to be put to death, right? Take up your cross, die to yourself daily. Our culture is so focused on self that it has moved wholeheartedly into the church where the church is completely focused on self. It's supposed to be service to others. Our whole our whole mindset, right, as we're studying through Philippians in our midweek study, let this mind also be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Right? Any of you that are familiar with that passage, he begins that by saying that Jesus came in the express image or the form of, of God, there's so much to that one word. The form is the idea that his very essence of Godhood and who he is is about giving to others. Completely non self focused. If you had all that God did and you are as sinful as you are, absolute authority to create, destroy, right, unto yourself, and you had your sinfulness the way you currently are intact, no one would survive, right? Because everybody being there to serve you, you would 
either turn them all into slaves or eliminate them. Our sinfulness needs to go. The, the character, right, that is our person is the antithesis of what God is. You know, thesis, right? A couple of us in this room might have actually developed a thesis when we were in college. You know, all that you had gathered in thought and mind regarding a particular subject, the, the theme and thesis of whatever subject you were going to deliver, anti-thesis, the antithesis. We are the antithesis of God. We're self-centered, self-focused, me, I. And we're supposed to come with the attitude of serving and doing and working. When we see this breakdown, this, this very description of each of these families doing their job, it's because they're saying, I want that. I'm not content with this. What does Paul tell Timothy? Godliness with contentment is great gain. That is great. You want great gain, right? The world's got this backwards, and much of the church has this backwards. You know, I need to go after great gain. Health, wealth, and prosperity, I need to go after great gain. And when I get great gain, well, you know, then I'll concentrate on being godly because then I'll be able to be content. It's the exact opposite. You've experienced it in life. Look out for number one. What does it produce? Anxiety, depression, bitterness. Called to serve. Go for the low position. Isn't this what Jesus said? You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? He didn't say, look, if you're trying to be the greatest in the kingdom, that's incredibly wicked of you, and you should quit right now. He didn't say that. He said, do you want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Then you're going to have to be the servant of everyone. That's what you're going to have to do. Dive for the bottom. Look for the lowest position. Serve as you can. These men are called to work and serve. That's how they serve God is by serving their fellow men. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're called to hardship. We're called to work, to service. The reward comes later. And if you haven't figured it out, being a child of God and a Christian is all about the retirement plan. The paycheck comes at the end. Not now, not in this life. This is about labor. This is about work that the Lord has called us to. I'll give you a couple more. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Lots of difficulties, lots of trials, lots of service is what the Lord has called us to. Well, how about one more? Jesus speaking, John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In me. In the world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've come to over, I have come to overcome the world. Be of good cheer. There's going to be lots of difficulty along the way, and we're called to it, called to serve in it. Christ wants to create within us his character. His character is that of a servant. 
If you want to serve the Lord, prepare to suffer. So we've got a little more to get through, and I've only got an hour left, so I've really got to hurry. You're kidding, man. A few more minutes. Easy, easy. Okay? A few more minutes. <clears throat> Verse 34. Moses and Aaron, leaders of the congregation, numbered the sons of Kohath, or the Kohathites, by their families and by their father's house. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle of meeting, and those who were numbered by their families, were 2,750. These were the ones who were numbered of the families of the Kohathites, all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So, carrying the interior furnishings. Gershon, in verse 38, those who were numbered of the sons of Gershon by their families and by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered by their families, by their father's houses, were 2,630. These are the ones who were numbered of the families of the sons of Gershon and all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord. Right? Many hands make light work, that whole thing. The more that serve, they're able to assign, you know, at this week, this group will serve. At this week, the next group will serve. And they went in rotation. We see that all the way up to the time of Jesus. Those are the families of the sons of Merari who were numbered by their families, by their father's house from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. Everyone who entered the service for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered by their families were 3,200. These are the ones who were numbered of the families of Merari, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So these carried the framework and the hardware. Verse 46 all who were numbered of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron, the leaders of Israel, numbered by their families, by their father's houses, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who came to do the work of service and the work of bearing the burdens of the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered were 8,580. So a total of the three groups, according to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered by the hand of Moses, each according to his service and according to his tasks. Thus were they numbered by him as the Lord commanded Moses. So the total number and service of the Lord, 8,580, verse 37, 41, 45, and twice in 49, it says, according to the word of the Lord. They just obeyed the Lord, simply in the numbering and simply in the service. If we do what the Lord tells us to do, we will then empower and enable us, he will, and empower and enable us to do that work. The things that he's called you to do, uh, we change our mind, then God will change our heart. You follow what I'm saying? If you've heard from the Lord and he said to you, hey, I want you to do this. And maybe you've even faded away from that. Did the Lord tell you to do that? Then just do it. Obey it. You say, well, I was into it, but now I'm not into it. I heard from the Lord, definitely. But 
you know, I didn't do it, and so now my heart has faded. Right? Jesus tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you invest in, your heart will be led to. If you change your thinking, God will change your heart in the process. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. I want to leave you with this and then we'll pray. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. The world needs us to be obedient to him. That's what the world needs. We look around at this <laughs> crazy world outside our walls, and what the world needs from you is for you to be obedient to the Lord. That's how simple it is. You don't have to conquer the world. You don't have to be the next Billy Graham. What's the simple thing he's called you to do? Do that. Obey the Lord. Make sense? Praise God. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are so grateful, so thankful for your love and your work in our lives. And we ask that you would minister to us. Give us your strength, Lord. We want to be obedient. Help us to be men and women who, number one, hear your voice, your leading very clearly from talking to those that you've put in our lives as spiritual leaders, from reading your word, from our time in prayer. Communicate with us directly and clearly so that we can know it's not our imagination. It's not what we are telling ourselves we should be doing, that you would have communicated with us very clearly. And then, Lord, help us to just obey, to do the things that you are telling us to do, that it would bless you and serve you and build your kingdom and the hearts minds, lives, circumstances of those we minister to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.